You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, Finished, The End of the World and Our Way of Living in It. In this series, we see that the powers and principalities of this world are finished, and our depraved way of living in this world is finished. Christ leads us into a new way of being human, and eventually, an entirely new creation. Now hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 61. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Elah, Elah, Lema Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this man truly was the son of God. And many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. As evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of, cl- of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Well, good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. It is good to see you guys. My name is Jonah. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Our mission at Sojourn is to reach people with the gospel, build them up as his church, Jesus' church, and send them into the world to follow Jesus. Everything we do as a church falls under one of those three categories. Reach, build, send. If you want to make it pop, reach, build, send. Uh, So reaching people. Some of that, what we do is on Sunday gatherings. You see, we have like a lot of people in the room now, uh, which is exciting and encouraging And next Sunday, anybody know what next Sunday is? Easter, Easter, which is usually our biggest Sunday of the year. Uh, And we're anticipating that being the case again next Sunday. So like we do every Easter, and I'm just telling you guys, I don't want to talk down to anybody, but I'm telling you somebody messes this up every year. So we're going to go real slow right now. There are three services at Easter next week. Uh, And some of that is so that we can keep the room spaced like this, that we can keep, we think there'll be bigger crowds and we want to be as safe as possible. So we're doing three services, 8.30, 10 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. Is that, that's on the screen. So I want you guys to say it with me now, the three service times, 8.30, 10, 
and 11.30 a.m. So if you want to like, if you want to share the gospel this week, just let people know there's going to be three service times because I tell you, this is what happens every week. Somebody with three kids and they're tired. I get it. I got kids. We don't hardly sleep at all. They, they walk out into the playground at 11.05 wondering why Sojourn Check-In is closed and because you're right in the middle of the service. That's what's happening right now. Three services, 8.30, 10, and 11. I've got 11.30. We got a lot of confidence that you guys are going to nail it this year. So that's coming next week. Invite a friend. Uh, it's a hopeful time, warm weather, and we'll be talking about the resurrection of Jesus, which I almost spoke in a tongue, Glenda. I almost spoke in a tongue. I got so excited. That's a Pentecostal joke from my friend Glenda up front. Um, I'm just really excited about it. Uh, if you remember, last Easter was an empty room. Most of us were crying through it. Uh, and so to have humans in the room um, is pretty exciting. Uh, also then, so that's part of what we do for reaching, the Sunday gathering, building, build people up as the church. We don't just want people to come. We want to equip people to be who God made them to be so that they can be the part of the body that God made them to be. And so in a few weeks, we have a class starting up called Live Sent. Uh, sometimes we have this notion of a missionary being somebody that goes to the other side of the world to do something radical in the name of Jesus. Uh, but if you notice, we talk about sending people, we talk about sending people to follow Jesus in their lives. And that's as a good neighbor, that's as a good employee. And so this class, Live Sent, is about what does it look like to live as one of God's sent ones? Uh, whether you want to go overseas or you want to figure out how to live like a Christian at work better or in your neighborhood better. You can register for that, get more information about that right from your Sunday bulletin within the app. And um, there's no obligation. This isn't like a bait and switch. We got you in the class and now we're going to send you to Istanbul or something like that. It's just a class to try to help you think through what does it look like for me to follow Jesus. Uh, and if you're curious about going overseas, that would be a great next step for you. It's going to be taught by all kinds of deacons and pastors from our church. Uh, Stephen Pierce, who oversees, Stephen Pierce, that's Stephen Pierce. Stephen Smith, who oversees our international missions, has been... Um, been overseeing this. So we're really excited. We've been talking about launching that for a while. So yeah, hopefully you can find a place somewhere in there. Um, some of you, if you're friends with me or my parents are here, I can't look at you guys because I'll get emotional because you haven't been in church in a year. Um, hi, welcome back. Um, uh, so if you're close to me, you know this, my parents know this. Uh, several years ago, I went through a roughly 12-month period of time of, an, of incredible spontaneous anxiety. And that's the kind of, if you've never dealt with anxiety, you're probably in your 20s. Um, so for me, what happened is I was fine and then I wasn't fine. Everything was okay and then I thought I was dying. Um, calm and then utter panic. And I went to doctors. I had doctors here at the church helped me out. I had tests done. I spent more money on medical bills than I ever thought I would when apparently I was fine. You know, it wasn't like there was a, my arm hadn't fallen off or something. And I did all of this, 12 months worth of it, because I thought I was dying. Um, in those moments of panic, I thought about how much I would miss. I, I thought about how much I would miss my kids, the things that I would miss in the lives of my kids, and I was afraid. I, I was legitimately afraid. Um, and what's kind of curious, I was talking to a friend about this last week, um, everyone I know, everyone I know personally that would be a friend Somewhere in their 30s and 40s, somewhere between in that 10-year window, they had a similar experience where they thought that they were dying. Um, I wasn't afraid of dying in my 20s. Uh, I was kind of like, bring it on. I'm ready to face the gallows for the, in the name of Jesus or whatever. I wasn't scared of dying in my 20s. Um, I'm afraid of dying now at the end of my 30s. I've heard people that can talk a big game 
um, or say the right things around death. But as far as I can tell, no one is immune from this fear of death. Or maybe we're, we can keep it at a distance until the phone rings or until we find ourselves in a hospital room. Um, and so one of, one of the most fundamental questions, one of the biggest questions that plagues every human who's ever lived is what do we do with this fear of death? There's a universal terror that we all know is coming for us. Uh, one of my closest friends is watching his mom die very slowly. Um, we thought that she was going to die quickly, and now she's dying slowly. And we were crying on the phone the other day and concluded that we're not built for this. Um, we're not, I don't know if you know this, but humans weren't made to die. So literally, we weren't built for death, let alone watching the slow death of someone that we love. We are not built to handle this. So, so what do we do? What do we do with this unavoidable fear of death? Um, this unnatural reality that's chasing all of us. One of the things that I learned through my you know, several years now of, of this new fear is that you can't just flip a switch and turn it off. Um, I, I know the promises of the scriptures. I know the verses, and yet there would be moments where everything is fine, and then it just hits. I can't turn it off. I can't simply think it away. But what I've, what I've come to see is that perhaps the question, what do we do about this fear of death, is the wrong question. And I would argue the scriptures teach us that that is the wrong question. Um, the Bible fundamentally is not a manual for facing life's problems. There is no, you know, like, I've got, I've got a tax problem, so I'm going to go to the book of Problems, chapter 3, and it will tell me exactly what to do about this specific problem. That's not to say there isn't truth in the Bible that will help you in specific scenarios, but the Bible isn't at its core a how-to book or a, a manual to live our best life now or, or something like that. Fundamentally, the Bible is the story of God. It is the revelation of who he is, what he's like, what he's up to, that we might see him, come to him, and become like him. So when it comes to our great fear, our fear of death, the Bible is asking a different question entirely. It's not giving us next steps to answer what do we do about this fear of death. The Bible is showing us what God will do about death. Death is a disease that has been inflicted upon God's creation. It's a disease that he must root out. What does he do about death? The text before us today says he comes and dies himself. That's the text today, the death of God. God will respond to death by dying himself. These verses that Kara read for us, they, they not only share the gospel with us, doesn't just tell us what the gospel is. It shows us what the gospel does. So we have to pay very close attention to some of these details in here to see what's happening. Look at how the death of God begins in verse 45. It says, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. He's not dead yet, but as he nears his death, the, the earth went dark. And if, you, if you're into stuff outside the Bible, we'll talk about some of this 
next week, if you're into like historical facts, go look at what other people said. There's reports from non-Christian sources about the whole earth going dark, a sudden eclipse at this time. The earth goes dark. Consider at the birth of Jesus, a star broke the night sky, a, a star shone announcing the birth of the Lord. At his baptisms, at his baptism, the heavens opened, a dove descended, and now here at the end, the heavens close and the sky dims. It's as if creation itself is going into mourning, covering itself in darkness. Jesus came into the world to save it, to heal it, to restore it. And what happened? Think about this. The best religion in the world at that time was Judaism. The best religion in the world conspired with the most advanced form of government to execute the Son of God who came to heal and restore. Creation itself is now fulfilling the prophecies of God. Through Amos, God said, in that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it's still day. I will turn your celebrations into times of mourning, your singing into weeping. You will wear funeral clothes and shave your heads to show your sorrow as if your only son had died. As Jesus nears his death, creation itself goes into mourning. And then the silence of this darkness is broken as the Son of Man himself cries out. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's the only time in Matthew's gospel that we get Jesus' words in Aramaic. This is likely the language that he spoke in his house growing up. These are the vulnerable words. He's going to what missionaries would call their heart language. This is the language I can share most clearly about who I am and how I feel. And so here, as he nears the end of his death, he, he cries out in, in Aramaic. And Matthew preserves these words for us in their original language, as if to say this is so sacred and important that there's no translation required here. You need his precise words. And can you see the last words of Jesus are a question? Every word is significant in this question. My God, you have abandoned me. And it's held together in the middle by why? Me, Jesus himself is crying out, me. He sees something happening to him. He doesn't cry out on behalf of the crowds or the people. He says, me, and abandoned. He's isolated and alone. His father in heaven has turned away. Why, he says, why? Questions are the most difficult to answer in life. He's confused. God, he says, not Father, but God. And perhaps he feels a distance now or a coldness, but he still calls him my God. He's not doubting, he's not turning from God, he still trusts, he still believes, but with his last breaths, he's essentially saying, Why, God? This final question, it, it shows us that Jesus didn't only come to give us answers. He came and asked our questions. Can you not in some way relate to each one of these words Jesus cries out? Can, can you not in some way relate to feelings of abandonment? Have you never asked why, God? Why would you do this? Why would you let this happen? 
He's taken on our abandonment. He's taken on our feelings of God's betrayal, our most agonizing experiences, and all of it left him asking, why? But there's still trust here. Even in his darkest moment, he calls out to God using the words of God. This is a quote from the Psalms. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22.1, which says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? He's clinging to his faith. He's clinging to the truth, even though he feels abandoned and confused. Try to put yourself in that posture with Jesus for a moment. The confusion, the isolation, the abandonment, and he cries out in his heart language, and look what he hears in response. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. He, he cries out, Eli, Eli. He's, he's saying, Father, God, Father, God. But they think he's calling for the prophet Elijah. Perhaps they didn't understand Aramaic. Perhaps they didn't care. Jesus is dying in darkness betrayed alone, and even misunderstood. They think he's a desperate false prophet grasping at straws to prove that he's Messiah, and so they mock him. Darkness in the skies, silence from heaven, and mockery from the crowds. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. Verse 50. Jesus takes on all we are in his death and all we deserve. Perhaps this is the kind of death that you're so afraid of, excruciating pain, abandonment, and betrayal, being misunderstood and mocked. So that question, what will God do about death? Here is the scripture's answer. This is what he will do. He will come and he will take it on himself. He will die the death that should be ours, experiencing the judgment of God, the isolation of sin, and the sting of betrayal. That's the gospel. The sinless Lamb of God will come and take upon himself that which is ours. He is the atonement for sins that we had done. Though innocent, he will die in our place. That's what the gospel is. And now watch what the gospel does. Verse 51, at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. As soon as Jesus dies, the temple curtain was torn in two. This was the curtain keeping people from the presence of God in the temple's most holy place. It was reserved for one man once a year when a payment for sin had to be made. But now Jesus has paid it all one time, once and for all. Because Jesus died, the presence of God is now open to all. And because the presence of God is now open to all, the grave itself is opened. Death, the most unnatural of diseases, is no longer permanent. Try to imagine being there. Try to imagine hearing Jesus cry out and give up his spirit in the darkness. And then there's an earthquake and the temple curtain gets torn in two and dead people start crawling out of the cemetery. 
darkness, mocking, and then an earthquake, and then people calling out of the grave, crawling out of the grave. What is going on? Verse 54 gives us a sense of what people were thinking. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that happened, which is a bit reductionistic, if you ask me. All that had happened, like the dead people crawling around. They said, this man truly was the son of God. The evidence was too overwhelming. This was not some criminal dying. This was truly the son of God. So the sky darkens, the earth shakes, the grave opens. It's so overwhelming that a Roman officer and a group of soldiers confess faith in Jesus right there. And then there's one final detail at the end. Many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them, I love that there's names here, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Many women who had come to care for Jesus were watching from a distance. They weren't allowed clothes, but do you see what this detail means? Jesus was not alone after all. He was not entirely abandoned, though he felt that way. The story of Jesus' death ends with a picture of faithful women watching from a distance. Step, step back with me now. These 11 verses show the entirety of the gospel and what's more, the entirety of, the human, his, of human history. At the center of human history is the death of Jesus of Nazareth. At the center of this passage, verse 50, is the death of Jesus of Nazareth. Look what comes before the death of Jesus in this passage. There's darkness. There's a cry of abandonment and there's mockery. Is this not your life before following Jesus of Nazareth? Mourning, suffering, betrayal, and loss, being misunderstood, darkness, abandonment, and mockery. These images are a summary of all of life before Christ. All of life since the fall of mankind. But then Jesus dies and history itself pivots the whole world changes from this moment on. Something new happens. Consider the events before compared to the events after. Darkness gives way to a veil torn in two and a grave opened. Darkness gives way to the light of God's presence and the light of life, not a grave. Jesus' cry of abandonment gives way to the soldier's confession of faith. And the mockery of these people gives way to the faithful presence of loving women. I put it up on a slide so you can see. Darkness before turns into a split veil in tombs after. Jesus' cry before turns into the soldier's confession after. Mockers before turns into faithful women after. By putting the death of Jesus at the center, he's saying, this is what I do. This is what the gospel does. What does God do about death? He turns darkness into the light of his presence. He turns betrayal into faith. He turns slander into solidarity. Because of what God has done, the fear of death itself has been destroyed. Because of what God has done, the darkness of death is transformed into the light of his presence. The pain of betrayals are transformed into the peace of his presence. The fear of what happens is replaced with the joy of seeing God's face. This is what God does about death. 
he dies himself, he sets us free from death, and he offers us his transforming power. This is what the gospel is, and this is what the gospel does. So, I have one simple question for you all that I want you to wrestle with this week. What will you do now that death has no sway over you? What will you do now that death has no sway over you? If you want to think about it another way, how would you live if death had no sway over you? How would you live if you didn't have to be afraid of what comes next? What will you do now that death has no sway over you? Every week we root ourselves in the promise of the gospel and the hope of the gospel so that we can ever increasingly more live into this reality that for those who belong to Christ, you don't have to be afraid anymore. We're going to talk a little bit next week about an angel showing up and saying, don't be afraid. Sometimes we hear that as a voice of condemnation and correction. What if we heard it as the voice of a good dad? And I know some of you didn't have a good dad and it's hard to imagine it. What if it was the voice of a good dad looking at you saying, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Come and follow me. Death has no sway over you anymore. You don't have to be afraid. So we call our minds to the night Jesus was betrayed, where he took a loaf of bread, he blessed it, he thanked God for it, and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink as often as you gather in remembrance of me. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.